In episode 55, we brought you a conversation with Kevin Sharp, a former federal judge who gave up the job because he had to impose harsh mandatory prison sentences. Several years later, we have an update. We talk with Kevin Sharp again, and this time also with Chris Young, who got one of those mandatory sentences, and he's now out, closing the circle on an unjust sentence That's on this episode of Criminal Injustice. Criminal Injustice is a listener-supported project. Become a member at patreon.com slash criminalinjustice. Welcome to Criminal Injustice. I'm David Harris, your justice nerd and geek extraordinaire, and still incredibly grateful for that most excellent day job as professor of law at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. Now here on Criminal Injustice, we've brought you lots of interviews and news items about mass incarceration and criminal sentencing. We've talked many times about reducing mass incarceration. We've talked about the ways that states have attacked the problem over the last 10 years, and we've discussed the fact that the problem really can't be solved just by grabbing the low-hanging fruit of eliminating the typically short sentences for nonviolent offenders. In order to fix this, we really have to come to grips with the fact that most of those in prison in this country are there not on short sentences, but on very long sentences. The United States, particularly the federal government, but many states too, uh, we hand out very long sentences like no other country on earth. And for the longest possible sentence, that is, life without possibility of parole, well, sadly, we're number one. The United States is the only country in the world that sentences people to life without parole for crimes committed when under 18 years of age. Minors, the only country that does that. According to a report by the Abolitionist Law Center, my own state, Pennsylvania, has more people serving life without parole sentences than any other country country in the world outside of the United States. And in the United States, Pennsylvania isn't number one. That would be Florida, which has more people serving those life without parole sentences than any other state. Plenty of facts, figures, trends, and statistics to discuss, and they make for a sobering picture. But few things can communicate this like a story of human beings involved in this system. And in episode 55, we brought you a story like that, a very powerful one. In that episode, our guest was Kevin Sharp. Mr. Sharp had been a federal trial judge, one of the most coveted legal positions imaginable. He's making decisions of consequence in the federal legal system and had been serving in that job with lifetime tenure. That means federal judges basically can't ever be fired as long as they behave themselves. You notice I said Mr. Sharp had been a federal judge because one of the jobs of a judge is to preside over criminal trials. And if the defendant is found guilty, the judge hands out the sentence according to law. And Judge Sharp became former Judge Sharp when he decided he simply could not do the job of giving out federal criminal sentences anymore. Too many of those sentences were far too long, cruel, and unjust. And they were mandatory. Judge Sharp had to give them. And one case that stuck in his mind that pushed him to finally resign was the case of a young man whose name was Chris Young. Judge Sharp told us the story in episode 55. Chris is a young African-American man. He had become involved as a bit player in the drug game. And by the time he showed up in Judge Sharp's courtroom, he was a very small fish in a very large drug conspiracy case. While almost all of the people running that drug ring took plea deals and received sentences averaging about 14 years, which is quite substantial. 
Chris decided he wanted a trial. He went to trial to try to show that he was, in fact, just a minor player. He was convicted, and under federal law, Judge Sharp had to give him not one but two sentences of life without parole. He knew, Judge Sharp said, he knew and he said in court that the sentence was unjust. Here is Judge Sharp some years later on CNN's program Amanpour and Company describing his thoughts at the time. Take a listen. I started to realize what a waste. This is, I mean, I, I, I intuitively knew that, but then when Chris stands up and starts talking about history and starts talking about his own history, the history of this country, uh, historical figures in world history, and then what he would do were he not going to die in prison. It was, you know, like a, like a lightning bolt. What in the world are we doing? This, this man doesn't deserve life. He deserves punishment. And let me mete out that punishment. Because one of the things I found very frustrating was all of the work and investigations and vetting that it takes to become a judge, to make sure that they're putting the right person in that position. Uh, The most important thing being that I have the judgment to make these kinds of decisions. And then instead what you do is you take that discretion away from me and you give it to someone else. Um, knowing nothing about the human being that I'm about to sentence. Um, and so that was what really struck me as, as this process was going on. Well, Judge Sharp left the bench in 2017, and when he did, he made his feelings known about unjust federal sentences, and he became one of the lawyers for that very same young man named Chris Young. And today, we have not just Judge Sharp with us, but Chris Young himself. He's our guest, too, because against all odds, Chris Young has been freed. And it's a very uncommon story on so many levels. I know you'll want to hear it. Chris Young is a formerly incarcerated person living in Nashville, Tennessee now. In 2013, Mr. Young was tried and convicted in federal court, Judge Sharp's court, for his role in that drug conspiracy. And despite his minor role, he was sentenced to a mandatory minimum sentence of life without parole. In fact, two such sentences. In January of 2021, his sentence was commuted by former President Trump. He is now a fellow at the Buried Alive Project, a nonprofit that works on cases of people who, like he once did, carry life sentences without parole. His goals in all of his activities, including developing an app geared to empowerment, his goals are to break down the stereotypes and change the paradigms concerning how the formerly incarcerated are perceived. Kevin Sharp is a former federal judge. He served on the U.S. District Court for the Middle District of Tennessee from 2011 to 2017, eventually becoming the court's chief judge. As a federal judge, he presided over Chris Young's 2013 trial, and he's the one who pronounced those sentences. He resigned from the bench in 2017, disenchanted with the federal criminal sentences he had been obligated to hand down, including the one to Chris Young. He returned to law practice, becoming one of Chris Young's lawyers, and eventually was able to see Chris Young released from prison. He currently practices at Sanford Heisler Sharp in Nashville, where he is co-vice chairman of the firm. Thanks to both of you for being here on Criminal Injustice. Yeah, thank you, David. It's, it's great to be here, and it's great to, to see Chris. Uh, I always enjoy getting to see him, especially in civilian clothes. Yes, sir. Thank you, Professor Harris. The pleasure is all mine. I appreciate you for inviting me. And I love seeing Judge Sharp every time, like he said, just to know that we're in different clothing, we're in different positions, and we're allowed to embrace a relationship that we formed through a a very unique situation. Well, that's terrific. 
Let's start with some background for people who may not have had the opportunity or don't remember episode 55, on which I got to interview Judge Sharp about Chris's case, but didn't get to talk to Chris. Chris, what led to you being in Judge Sharp's courtroom in 2013 and 2014? Choosing the path of least resistance. I was engaged into drug dealing and I got arrested a part of a federal drug conspiracy. Instead of embracing my inner spirit, embracing my inner ambitions and really pursuing what I would want in life, I chose what was around me. I chose what was unfortunately easy for me. And it led to me being incarcerated on a federal drug conspiracy. So as you were there in that courtroom, were you surprised to be found guilty? Were you surprised uh, by the prospect of a very lengthy sentence? I was definitely surprised that I was facing two mandatory life sentences. That's something that's not easy for any person to accept. I don't care who they are, what they've done. But the fact that I was found guilty by 12 people that don't know the law, that is the part that's nerve wracking because the law itself, yes, I did do something wrong, and I will be trying to play everybody for a fool to sit up and say that I didn't do something wrong. But to say I agreed into some overarching grand scheme, I think that's unfair, and I think it needs to be more safeguards and rails to keep people from being encompassed into something so easily. Yeah, so, and that really brings up an important point. Uh, you were part of this group of people who were facing these charges, um, but the rest of the folks, uh, e even the top people in, in the group, uh, uh, all took plea bargains and received sentences, uh, none of them topping uh, the, the mid-teens. The, the average, I think, was 14 years. Uh, and were you thinking, well, that'll be my sentence, or were you surprised, or what? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I, I was 22 when I was arrested. 2010 was my 22nd birthday. And a few months later, I was in handcuffs by federal agents. And to sit up and think, OK, I'm not going to get released until I'm almost 40. That's a hard thing for a person to swallow. And then it goes from being released when I'm 40 to, oh, you're supposed to die in here. Oh, man. You know, that was hard to accept and embrace and i'm glad i didn't accept and embrace it and i'm glad i stayed focused and motivated to show the world i am more than someone to throw away i am more than just a man that made bad choices and i'm blessed because the main person that need to know that seen it and that was just sharp so let let me turn to to kevin sharp right now the the case against chris young involved this drug conspiracy more than 30 different people um, and you, in uh, other interviews, you've described Chris as a very sort of minor player with the bigger fish all pleading guilty, getting sentences in that 14-year range. Uh, so what happens to a person in Chris's position when he does that? What did you see coming as you sat at the trial? Well, right, I was just thinking about that as you're talking to Chris. I saw it coming. You know, Chris, were you surprised by this? I, I wasn't surprised. I was surprised that he was going to trial because I understand the trial penalty. You know, you can take a deal and, and it's a long time, but at least it ends. What I knew was coming, coming through here, if you're going to try this case and the likelihood is you're going to be convicted, do you really understand what's about to happen? And I, and I was really concerned about that as we're leading up pre-trial to this and and was very concerned during the course of the trial as I'm hearing a lot of the evidence I knew some of it but but I'm really hearing it during the trial and I know what's about to happen I also understand that at 22 years old I'm thinking back you know being 40 seems like a lifetime you yeah. know that mentality and and particularly where I, I grew up in Memphis I understood not completely the way Chris grew up because I'm white and it just makes a difference. So I didn't completely understand it, but I was familiar with it and I understood it to a certain extent. And I, I know that mentality of being 20, 21, 22 years old and thinking, 
you know, do I make it until I'm 40? I don't know. And when someone says you're going to, you're going to spend the rest of your, or spend uh, your time in prison until you're about 40, that seems like a lifetime. Not realizing, no, life is life. There is, there is a life and that means you're going to die in prison. And that's the way, you know, it's not presented that way. You're going to have life in prison. No, you're not. You're going to die in prison. And that is hard to, to understand and grasp as a 22 year old. And I understood that. So there you both were comes the day of sentencing. And now I think you both know what's coming at that point. Uh, Chris, you made a decision to um, have your say, and everybody who's going to be sentenced gets to have a say uh, at that time. It's called the allocution. But you had a particular goal in mind, you've said, uh, in speaking to Judge Sharp on that day. And I think it goes back to what you were just saying. You wanted him to see you as you, as a human being. Can you talk a little bit about that? How you do, what was your approach? What were you trying to do? Yes, sir. As my best friend and a former attorney, Brittany K. Barnett, I always stress, I want people to see the human element, to see that this is a living, breathing human being that we're finna just throw away. At the time, I wouldn't be able to articulate like that, but I did know I wanted them to see me as more than the drug dealer, as more than the guy who just got convicted in this trial. I wanted them to see me as the guy that's just as intelligent as you, but didn't have the same opportunities as you. The psychologist Abraham Maslow stressed that the human psyche can only develop when it has its necessities provided for. And growing up, I didn't have the necessities provided for. It was times in my life where I went with months with no lights and water. It was times in my life where I had to go to school with big holes in my shoes and my clothes too little or stinky. And so I started selling drugs at a young age and I had been doing it all my teenage years. And unfortunately, I got arrested. But once I did get arrested, I educated myself despite of being incarcerated, not because I was incarcerated. Being incarcerated did give me shelter and food, but it also put me in a dangerous environment. But instead of engaging into those dangerous activities, I chose to engage into the activities of educating myself. And so as you stood there, you talked to Judge Sharp. He has uh, said in various interviews about um, you, who you really were to give him a sense of Chris Young, the human being. And um, my sense from hearing uh, Judge Sharp react to that uh, when I interviewed him earlier on was it came through and he understood that you were really a person. And I want to turn to Judge Sharp now and just ask, uh, what was that moment like? What, when did it hit you? What, what did you feel? You know, one of the things that I tried to do in every sentence, not sentencing, not just Chris, and I came into Chris's this way, is I, I tried to see everyone, and I think I was successful at that, as seeing them as people and understanding that I have a human being in front of me. What was different about Chris was that what struck me and was so dynamic was who that human was. You know, I had this concept that I have a human being in front of me, but I don't really know them. I learned a little bit about them on a, in a pre-sentence report, right, which is, is part of the sentencing process. I, I get a report about this person, and so I know facts and figures about them. But I don't know who they are, and I don't know what we're, we as a society are losing. And that's what really struck me is not just that I've got this human being who made a mistake and now I'm going to have to sentence him, but, oh my God, look what we are all about to lose. This is not just Chris losing his life to the, to the federal penitentiary. This is not about his mother not being able to, to hold him or friends and that ripple effect that any sentencing has. But listening to this young man, I realized, uh, my God, we are, we as a, 
people are losing something very important. And then it's just, well, it's, this is not just Chris. There is, a, there is, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of Chris Young's out there. And this is what we're throwing away. And so they are humans, but these are humans with so much potential and so much value as they are standing here in front of me. And that's what we're throwing away. And Chris's allocution is what just kind of the, the dam breaks and you're flooded with this sense of how really painful for everyone what we're about to do is. And of course, as a, as a judge, as a sitting judge, then you have to th be thinking uh, both in human terms, as you've just articulated, and in terms of justice. And I read one of the statements that you made at that moment. What did you say about justice? You know, you, you go through so much to become a federal judge, right? And, and why do they, why do they trust you with this position? Because they trust your judgment and your ability to um, mete out justice, to make sure that justice is served, because ultimately that's what we're there for. And if instead you're going to take that away from me and tell me what to do, and I've described this before as stealing a line from the movie Apocalypse Now, where, where uh, the Marlon Brando character describes the, his assassin as, a, as a, uh, an errand boy sent to collect a, a bill by a grocer. If all I'm doing is delivering messages, I'm not, I am not, uh, I, I am not executing the justice that you want me to do. This is not justice. This is just cogs and let's just run them through as if they're not human beings. Do you want justice? Which is then let me treat him as an individual and decide what the appropriate penalty is. Uh, and what the appropriate sentence should be, because it's not all just about penalty. There are lots of things that go into sentence, but they have to be individualized. And so mandatory minimums, which I already had a problem with, then just become, this is the poster child for what's wrong with mandatory minimums. If I can't treat him as an individual, then what am I doing here? Why, you don't need me for this. You can pick anybody for this. So... It's not long after that, that with Chris Young in your mind and other right. young men in your mind who you have had the job of uh, delivering that message, as you put it, um, you decide this isn't for me. Uh, the highly prestigious life tenured job that some people spend a lifetime pursuing, right. I'm done with it. Right, because what it came down to for me, and it could have it could have been for me. The decision that I had to make is: Am I more useful now as, as I have this problem with the system? And if what I want to do is serve, which is why I took this job, it's why I was in the United States Navy, it's why I worked for Congress, it's why I sat on the federal judiciary, is because I want to serve my country. And so I had to come, uh, you know, to this this conclusion, am I more useful to society and to my country on the bench or off the bench? And I could have made the decision, I suppose, to stay on the bench and struggled with what I was doing, or do I come down off the bench and, and try to make a difference that way and try to become the servant that I had hoped to be? And, and the answer was, yes, it's time to go. And, and let's talk about these things and let's see if we can't make some changes. And that, that moment sees Chris, uh, Chris is, uh, uh, in prison and he's under life sentence. And you know, that I think things, uh, could look pretty bleak, uh, in that situation. Uh, that's putting it mildly. You're both laughing and I agree. Um, understatement of the year. So how do you, Chris Young, how do you preserve your humanity? Uh, you, you, you talked in a way in your court appearance before Judge Sharp that 
really got to him and said, this is a valuable human being. How do you preserve that human being while in prison under that sentence? What did you do? How did you live? Because I knew that was one of my aims and objectives, my ambition got fueled by having the two life sentences. Because I knew I wanted to change people's opinion, not of only me, but of people that come from where I come from and have been through what I've been through, I knew I couldn't give up. And it was plenty of moments where I wanted to. And I just kept finding the right motivating forces. I worked out daily, I read daily, and then unfortunately, I seen people in worse conditions and situations than me. You would think in your mind, how can it get worse than two life sentences? But it can, it can get worse. I sold drugs, but then you have a man like Mr. Leonard Peltier that Judge Sharp is trying to help right now, who even his district attorney who prosecuted him is admitting we didn't have no evidence against him. I'm willing to admit they had evidence against me. I sold drugs and I just didn't feel like I was a part of this grand arching scheme, but I sold drugs. So it was easier for me to accept that compared to somebody who even the government is admitting, hey, we don't have no evidence against. And so I was meeting guys like that. I was meeting guys that had been locked up 30 years on their life sentence. I was meeting guys that had been locked up 25 years on their life sentence. I had met, I had met guys that had 20 year sentences and they was only 18 and they had barely sold a handful of drugs. And that was not right to me. And I told myself that if I can keep pushing forward, it won't be just for me. It'll be also for them. So I can help prove and show that we have value. And those books, those push-ups, those sit-ups, those pull-ups, every single exercise I did physically and mentally, it was the fuel in my gas tank. It helped me going forward. We're you know what's really funny about that? Sorry to interrupt you, David. That um, I, I maybe naively always thought that he was going to get out. Um, you thought he you was going to get out. I thought I, I didn't think this was going to be a life sentence after I was out and Brittany Barnett and I are working together. Um, I, I thought we were going to do it. And so uh, I don't, you know, when I, when I met Chris at the airport, when he came home, I just felt like, I know, I knew this day was coming naively because there was really no reason to think that was going to happen. But, but I did. Um, so I don't know. I, you know, I, I think I hear it from Chris that he's thinking maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Chris, sorry to answer for you, but I, I get the sense that Chris felt the same way. It is not going to end like this. Yes, sir. I concur. I kept that. And for lack of a better word, the anger that I had in my situation was like a log being thrown on the fire. And every time I seen something that I didn't agree with, whether it was an individual I was seeing in there or every time something happened with me, I was throwing another log on the fire. I was opening a container of lighter fluid and squeezing it on the fire. There's no reason for us to think this though. I mean, it couldn't, the, the, our prospects couldn't look any worse. <laughs> I just felt like it was gonna, it was not gonna end that way. And yet there you were both feeling some hope for the future. Let's take a quick break. Uh, we're in conversation here today with Chris Young, a formerly incarcerated young man who has been released for, uh, from federal prison through a, a, a federal commutation by former President Trump, and Kevin Sharp, a former federal judge who became one of Chris Young's attorneys after actually pronouncing the sentence on him. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hi, everyone. David Harris here with you on Criminal Injustice. And our guests today are Chris Young, formerly incarcerated young man, now released under a presidential commutation, 
and Kevin Sharp, former federal judge, the person who pronounced two mandatory life sentences on Chris Young when Mr. Sharp was a judge who left the bench and became one of Chris Young's lawyers. Uh, Gentlemen, before the break, we were talking about uh, that period between the pronunciation if that's the right word, of the sentence and how Chris sustained himself as he went through the uh, first few years. Uh, I think it's time to talk about uh, one of Chris's lawyers, and that would be Brittany Barnett. Um, Miss Barnett uh, is a lawyer down there in Tennessee. She was Chris's lawyer. She created something called the Buried Alive Project. And when uh, Judge Sharp resigned from the bench, and he told his story publicly that he had stepped down because he did not agree with having to uh, put these sentences on people, particularly Chris Young. Uh, Brittany got in touch with Kevin Sharp, and the team was born. Uh, uh, first, um, Chris, can you tell us a little about uh, Brittany Barnett and how she became your lawyer, what she meant to you? Yes, sir. The day was a rough day. I had been dealing with the pain from my hips deteriorating. I have sickle cell anemia and my hips were deteriorating. The bone marrow was getting eaten up. So I was walking around bone on bone, dealing with excruciating pain every single day. And so the day was already rough. The month prior, I had lost my appeal. Unfortunately, I got denied clemency by the pardon attorney in the Obama administration. So it was a rough day. And then I got on the computer and I seen the judge Shaw was speaking out and he had resigned from being a judge. When that happened, it was breathtaking. And I was optimistic and I said, it's time, it's time, something's gonna happen. And that something was Brittany K. Barnett. Miss Brittany K. Barnett got in touch with me and she told me how she had been informed of my story and how she had successfully gotten seven people clemency under the Obama administration. She knew I had got denied, but she said, don't give up. We still gonna keep fighting, which is what I wanted to hear and which is what I needed to hear. But when she told me she got in touch with Judge Sharp, all I could do was be ecstatic, happy and elated. But even beyond my gratitude and happiness, I thought about these two individuals and what they was going through. I thought about how he had just had the courage to step down from a lifetime employment. He put his financial stability at risk to help others. That spoke volumes to me, let alone speaking out for me, how she was a corporate attorney. She quit her job, risked her financial stability to help individuals like me. And now she was admitting that she wanted to help me. All I could do was think about how strong these two people were and how they were amazing and fascinating. Brittany had won a lot of people's clemency and now she wanted to fight for me. And it was time for me to enter the ring with her. So you've got these two lawyers um, who are now together on your behalf um, uh, uh, Kevin Sharp, why don't you talk to us a little about how you met Brittany and, uh, what the strategy was from that point. Yeah. So, uh, Brittany had been, Chris, Chris mentioned that she had been a corporate attorney in Texas and uh, she had stepped down. She had her own personal experiences with, with a family member who had been convicted on drug charges and spent time in prison. She had grown up in that world and understood it. You know, after all of the work, it's kind of what you're talking about, how hard people work to get to the bench and then to leave it behind. Brittany had that same experience on coming out of, of her circumstance and working so hard. And now you, you're out of law school and you're doing corporate work with a big firm in Dallas, I think it was. She's, she has hit it. This is, this is what you were working for. And instead, she steps down to work on cases like Chris's. And she um, read about... Uh, read my story, but I think she also read Chris's story. There was a Vice magazine story about Chris that kind of mentions me because of my role in that, but it was about him. She read both of those stories and then just called me and introduced herself and said she's coming to Nashville. Um, would I meet with her? And, it, and 
and we met in a coffee shop kind of close to my office. And um, I got to know who she was. And that was part of what was, uh, had my, created my feelings that we're going to do this. this. This young woman knows what she's doing and has a plan. And we spent a couple of hours um, sitting in this coffee shop talking about how we can get Chris out of there. Um, one of the things that she did is she also filed the uh, 2255 um, petition on his behalf. Better tell us what that is. Well, <laughs> well, they are they are essentially it's uh, it's an appeal looking for um, irregularities in the process to to help overturn this conviction. And I told her, look, we'll go through. I'll sit down with you, and we'll review these trial transcripts and. And if we can find where I've done something wrong, you know, I'll, I'll fall on my sword on that one. Uh, I don't, you know, I, I try to get it right. If I got it wrong, let's, let's admit that. Right. This is not about, this is not about not being overturned on appeal. This is about getting it right. Um, unfortunately we couldn't, um, I, I couldn't find any, any, you know, anything that wasn't harmless error. Of course, everything can be harmless error to the court of appeals mm-hmm. um, because the system is set up to confirm jury verdicts, not overturn them, right? There's, the system is just set that way. Yeah. And that's so an it, important that was, point. Yeah. Right. It's, it's, it's how they do it. They don't want you overturning jury verdicts. The system breaks down. It's the same reason why plea bargains, um, are encouraged. We don't want people exercising their rights. And I, we, I don't mean me personally, but the, the system doesn't want you to exercise your right to a trial because that creates a mess. It costs money for them. It costs money and time, and they don't want to put that into the system. And so let's see if we can grind people through by forcing plea bargains instead of people exercising their constitutional rights to a trial. So you know, that's, that's why we end up g- going through this. And Brittany is just uh, a machine. She is so good at this. Um, and if I can elaborate, they couldn't find anything that Judge Sharp did wrong, but she was able to find something that was wrong. And she successfully filed an argument in my 2255, which anybody that's dealt with the criminal justice system, they understand this is literally technically the last bite of the apple you'll probably ever have. And she successfully won. She got my life sentences overturned. And I still had a few more years to serve, but I wasn't set to die in prison anymore off of the tedious, painstaking, hard, arduous work of her combing through word for word, letter for letter, action by action of my pre-trial process, my trial process, and now she finally won some in post-conviction. So she's so, a bit of a superhero, it sounds like. She is situation. a superhero. Yeah, she is so good. Yeah. Um, and she's done this for, for others, but there was something, I think Brittany saw the same thing. The same thing happened to her that happened to me is just this light switch that goes on when you're talking to and listening to, to Chris or you're reading about Chris. You just understand all of the things that are wrong with the system culminated right here with Chris Young. And that's why his story is so important. And that's why getting his, his sentence commuted was so important because it's just, uh, you know, it, it is everything that's wrong come together in, in one human story. Yeah. So let's bring it to that point. Uh, once, um, um, uh, Brittany works her magic and gets the sentence reduced, there's still sentence to be served, but that wasn't the end. Uh, both, uh, uh, Brittany Barnett and Kevin Sharp continue to work for Chris Young. And then the goal is clemency and clemency means either a pardon or a commutation. And since it's a federal case, it can only come from the president. And by this time, uh, 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 Donald Trump is the president. And in order to get his attention, again, lightning has to strike. And that's when Brittany has a connection, 
here's a person whose name I didn't ever think would be on my podcast with <laughs> Kim Kardashian. And this turns out to be kind of important. Uh, tell the story. Well, you know, Chris has got his own version because she intersects with us in different ways. For me, it was a call from Brittany Barnett back in, in the summerish of 2018. It says, what are you doing? Um, I'm going to get um, Kim Kardashian on the line. Can you hang on for a few minutes? And um, I end up on the phone with Kim and Brittany. And then uh, we call in uh, to talk to Chris uh, at the prison. And um, so that's kind of, I don't know if Chris had, had spoken to, to Kim before that. That was the first time that I had spoken to her. And it ends up, or, or as it moves along, getting an invite to the White House in September of 2018. And so the long story short is I end up in the Oval Office with Kim Kardashian, Van Jones, uh, Ivanka, and Jared Kushner and the president. Oh my God. <laughs> Talk about unlikely things in life. Chris, what's your version of this part? <laughs> Anxiety, <laughs> excitement. So Brittany had been representing Miss Alice Johnson. Alice Johnson is a person who President Trump pardoned uh, yes, based sir. on the recommendation from Kim Kardashian. Yes, sir. And so Brittany had already been in the loops with Kim. Her and Kim had formed their own friendship relationship and she wanted to speak on other cases. And when Kim said that, Brittany suggested mine. Once Kim looked over the facts, she said, I would love to speak on his behalf and let's see what we can make happen. And from that moment forward, I was elated and shocked that I was now put into this position in this spotlight, but it didn't happen overnight. At this time, I still had two life sentences too. We kind of jumped the gun when we were speaking about Brittany winning the motion. Um, when, I see. When, when Brittany, Judge Sharp, and Kim went to the White House, I still had two life sentences. Still had no release date, still didn't know what was going to happen. So to know that somebody was sitting in the most powerful building in the world, technically, in so many ways and words, to know that they were sitting in this building and having conversations about me. It's nothing I could feel but euphoria, just be all around happy and excited. The reality is I still had to stand up for count time. I still had to be forced to live with other men stacked on top of me and under me. I still had a limit of foods I can eat. I still had to pay exorbitant amounts to use the phone and only have a certain amount of minutes. So I couldn't let myself get too excited. I had to stay grounded and realize the reality was I was still locked up with two life sentences. Right. So while the life sentences were still in effect, this White House meeting happens. Um, bizarre circumstances Hope is in the air, uh, though Chris has to stay grounded and, and not let, let, let him get himself get carried away with it. Um, and after that meeting at the White House, what? Not much, right? Yeah, crickets. I, I walked out of there. You know, there, Chris is sitting in a cell somewhere and in the Oval Office is the president of the United States. Uh, you know, his two closest advisors in Ivanka and Jared. Kim Kardashian and Van Jones uh, talking about Chris Young. Um, and I really, I walked out of there thinking, okay, we got this. You know, I'll, I'll, by the time I get home, I'll have a phone call. And that's September of 2018. And we get nothing, hear nothing about it again. Um, people continue to work it. You know, Brittany is still... Um, working the phones and, and talking to the white house. Um, but, but nothing is happening. And nothing is heard until when I heard, uh, the night before, um, uh, Trump's last day in office, uh, I had a phone call from 
uh, Brittany, and then another from Alice Johnson, because Alice became an advisor to the White House on clemency issues. I had a call, separate calls from both of them saying, we've got confirmation that he's going to sign the papers tomorrow. Wow. Yeah. So, Talk about the cliffhanger, right? He's all about oh my the gosh. cliffhanger. Yeah. So, um, there it is. And it happens on his very last day in office. Chris, what happened? How were you notified? What happened? How'd you walk out? So as you've spoken on, let's put it in chronological order here. Yes. They went to the White House September 2018, September 5th to be exact. From September 5th, 2018. I did not know that. Thank you. For <laughs> September 5th, 2018 turns into September 5th, 2019, September 5th, 2020, and I'm still incarcerated. I'm at a United States penitentiary, which is the maximum security level of the federal prison complex. The federal system is broken down into levels. And with me having life sentences, I had to be at the highest level. We have been locked down from 2019, 2020 rolling around, COVID hit. So we locked down again. Brittany wins the 2255 motion that we spoke on earlier in the podcast. When she wins this motion, it takes my life sentences off of me, which makes me not maximum security level. Now I'm the low level. I'm a security level that's low, but they won't transfer me because of COVID. So they take me and put me in what we call the shoe or the hole. We call it the hole, but it's really the segregated housing unit. We call it the hole because you would think you was in a hole. There's no windows. You can't see outside. There's no TVs, no radios. There's no nothing. You're just there. You're isolated. You're segregated. You're by yourself. And I spent my last four months incarcerated there. So I had no idea about anything going on in the free world. I knew it was a presidential election finna happen. I didn't know who won. Finally asked the guard, I heard Biden had won. Like I said, it had been three years since they had spoken at the White House. So I wasn't thinking I was finna get no clemency. And then one day the lieutenant knocks on the door and he's smiling, he's laughing. And he said, you wanna hear some good news? He's a jokester, a prankster, so I'm like, uh-huh. go on somewhere. I ain't trying to play with you freaks. You know I don't do them. I don't play them games like that. And he like, no, come here, young. I'm like, what's up? He like, come here. So I get up, I walk to the door. He said, you want to go home? I said, Franks, come on. No disrespect, but you know I ain't that type of guy. I don't never horseplay with you. Don't play with me like that. He said, I'm serious. Do you want to go home? I said, yes, sir. Why wouldn't I want to go home? He said, well, come on, man. Grab your stuff. And he stuck the key in the door. When he stuck that key in that door, reality was telling me he's serious. But, you know, I'm waiting to get transferred. So I've been back here four months and they ain't got to transfer me nowhere but across the parking lot. Literally, the low security is right across the parking lot. But I've been back here four months. So I'm still kind of thinking he horse playing. He put me in handcuffs because I'm in a shoe. So I got to get handcuffed every time I'm not secured. When he take me in his office and my case manager was right there and I looked down and I seen the presidential seal, the golden emblem that represents the United States of America, the White House. And I looked down, I seen them papers. I said, this is serious. Wow. Wow. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So fast forward to the airport and the two of you lay eyes on each other for the first time since the sentencing without any barriers between you what was it like uh, for me I was so excited everything was exciting but to actually see him and to know that this man had the audacity and courage to say hey this is a good person this is a smart person this is a person that needs to be free I don't care what you think about me or him. I am taking a chance on letting the world know these are my feelings. I was ready for the hug. Still a little apprehensive because <laughs> this is a, still a judge in my mind. So I don't know if you want to shake hands or not. You know, we had talked on the phone. So we talked about hugging. But, you know, 
He's an older white man that I've never interacted with. So as much as I want to hug him, I'm still a little apprehensive. But not only did he hug me, he loved me. He exuded that energy and embraced me in a way that I could tell every single word, every single action, every single fiber of his being was sincere about looking at me in the best light, about wanting to help me, and about happy that I was finally free. Right. And Kevin Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it was, right, I, I wanted to do that the day of sentence, right, take off his robe and, robe and, and hug this man. Um, we got to do it that day. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Chris, I want to give you the last word. What's your life about now? What do you do now? I am working right now. You could call it a mental health app, but due to the stigma that lies around that phrase, I call it an empowerment app. Unfortunately, my brother committed suicide in 2007. Oh, and ever sorry. since that day, thank you, thank you. Ever since that day, I always wondered how could I help? How could I have prevented that? And how can I help individuals going forward? And so while I was incarcerated, Beyond my business plans, I also taught myself how to code. So I taught myself the theory of computer programming, but I had no hands-on experience since I've been out and I've been practicing it. But the level of artificial intelligence I want to mix inside the app, I've been trying to raise funds to hire a development team. And I won't like you. The app will be called Like You. It will help remove the isolating effects of trauma and encourage people to travel towards a lifestyle of positive mental health. And so I've been working on that. And then I've been helping my attorney, Ms. Brittany K. Barnett, with her Bird Alive project. And this hoodie I have on, I wore it today on purpose, given the fact of what we're speaking on here today. This is one of her slogans. It says, there's nothing more urgent than freedom. And she says she realized that as she was working as a corporate attorney and people from where she grew up, people that she knew personally and people that she was meeting kept coming to her asking for legal advice. But in her mind, she was like, I'm a corporate attorney. I'm not a criminal justice. I'm not a criminal lawyer. And then she thought to herself, I'm a lawyer. And that's all that matters. And there's nothing more urgent than freedom. And so she coined that phrase and she lives by that phrase. There's nothing more urgent than freedom. And so I wore this hoodie on purpose and I love helping her and everything she has going on. Well, that's, uh, that's, that's quite a way to, to end our discussion today. I'm, uh, I'm inspired and a little bit overwhelmed myself. Uh, you've been listening to uh, Chris Young, a uh, formerly incarcerated person, uh, freed from life sentences uh, in federal prison by a commutation from former President Trump in 2021. He is now a fellow at the Buried Alive Project. And as you just heard, he's developing uh, a mental health app uh, to help people overcome isolation and trauma. Our other guest has been Kevin Sharp. Kevin is a former federal judge. He presided at Chris Young's trial, pronounced the sentence, and then left the bench in order to make a different kind of difference. And one of the ways he did that was by serving as Chris Young's lawyer, along with Brittany Barnett. I want to thank you both for a terrific conversation today on criminal injustice. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, David. Thanks for having us, Chris. Great to see you again. As always, great to see you, Judge Shaw. <laughs> Professor Harris, thank you for the work you do and thank you for having us on. Best of luck to you both. And now let's wind it up like we do on every episode with another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly. And this episode of Lawyers Behaving Badly from the Louisville Courier-Journal, the Kentucky Supreme Court, and the ever-reliable ABA Journal News Online concerns lawyer Eric Dieters of Independence, Kentucky. 
Lawyer Dieters has, shall we say, a consistent history with the Kentucky Bar Authorities. For much of the past decade, Lawyer Dieters has been suspended from the practice of law. From many different cases, these suspensions have stemmed from failures to be truthful, failures to refund unearned fees, and other actions, all stemming from what the authorities have nicely called, quote, an aggressive litigation style, close quote. Well, yes, that does sound kind of aggressive, those failures to deal truthfully. Yes, kind of aggressive, you might say. Well, Lawyer Dieters has moved several times for reinstatement from those suspensions, and in at least some of those cases, the bar authorities viewing his conduct while under suspension and his explanations have said, no way. With a history like this, where are we now? Well, with Lawyer Dieters under suspension, it is certainly not supposed to be practicing law. That much we would all probably have guessed. Suspension from practice means no acting as a lawyer for the duration of the suspension. No one needs a legal education to understand that. So, the latest chapter? The Kentucky Bar Authorities have asked a court to hold Lawyer Dieters in contempt because... He seems to be practicing law. His law firm, still carrying his name, by the way, continues to operate. He put the firm under his father's name, he says, for purposes of, quote, cover. And the firm employs lawyer Eric Dieters as a, quote, paralegal. Paralegals, of course, are not lawyers and don't need to be licensed. Paralegals cannot, of course, oversee the work of associate attorneys, hire and fire attorneys employed at the firm, or make compensation decisions about the firm's employees. And Lawyer Dieters has been doing all of those things and more. Dieters, quote, masterminded two federal lawsuits seeking to overturn vaccine mandates for hospital employees. Lawyer Dieters supervised an important set of cases for the firm, holding monthly meetings with plaintiffs, that would be clients, to inform them of developments and give them advice. That sounds like lawyer work. His firm also continued to run commercials on the firm's website containing false and misleading content and ran social media ads indicating that Lawyer Dieters was still licensed while under suspension. When called to account for this and other activity while suspended, Lawyer Dieters refused to provide requested updates and documentation to the bar authorities. So, the Kentucky Bar Authorities are nevertheless asked to lift his suspension. And no, they even sent lawyer deeders for a mental health examination as part of the process. The findings? No mental illness. He knows how to conform his conduct to the rules of ethics. So, the question is whether he will choose to do so, said the mental health professional. And the bar authorities reviewing that mental health report and all the rest of the evidence said, no, he won't choose to do that and will not have his suspension lifted. So how do you suppose lawyer Dieters reacted? He says bar authorities can't stop him from doing what he's doing. He's not actually a suspended lawyer. He's calling himself a retired lawyer. So the bar authorities have nothing to say to him. Well, if they think he's practicing law without a license, let the district attorney bring criminal charges against him. Quote, if I am guilty of unauthorized practice of law, and I am not, a prosecutor can charge me, Dieters said. Quote again, I welcome the jury trial, close quote. Well, yeah, it's all Clint Eastwood up in here. Go ahead, make my day. Lawyer Dieters, be careful what you wish for. And a note to the Kentucky Bar Authorities, enough with the suspensions already. 
it's time to disbar Lawyer Dieters. It may not do any good because, well, he's going to keep doing what he's doing anyway. So how about disbarment plus a referral to the prosecution? And that closes another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly. And with it, we wrap up another episode of Criminal Injustice. Subscribe to Criminal Injustice with our RSS feed if you haven't already, and share us all over social media. Review us, please. A good review will help people find us. Check out our website. That's criminalinjusticepodcast.com for all of our interviews, our news items, and more stories of lawyers behaving badly. Thanks for listening. I'm David Harris, and I'll be back with you next time. On Criminal Injustice, we've examined a host of changes and reforms that have altered the criminal legal landscape. But nothing, nothing can match the change brought to every aspect of the system by the use of DNA to uncover wrongful convictions. The DNA earthquake. That's on the next episode of Criminal Injustice. Find it on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app or at criminalinjusticepodcast.com.